This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Gesher. You know, we hear much about woke ideology, intersectionality, and critical race theory today, uh, particularly in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and the social unrest that we've experienced these last few years in the United States. But there's a question here, and that's, how is this impacting the Jewish community? Well, here to talk with me is David Bernstein. David is the founder and CEO of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. The mission of that organization is to support liberal principles of free thought and expression, advance viewpoint diversity, counter the imposition of the critical social justice ideology in the Jewish community, and to highlight and oppose novel forms of anti-Semitism emerging from this ideology. Bernstein is past president and CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs and former executive director of the David Project. And he's here today to talk with me about his recent book, very recent book, Woke Anti-Semitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. David, welcome to Gesher. Thanks. It's great to be with you. You know, David, uh, it's no secret, anti-Semitism in the West, uh, even here in our beloved uh, U.S., is on the rise um, one statistic I've read recently, it's up about 34% uh, from 2020 over 20 to 2021. And when we think of anti-Semitism, at least when I have his, traditionally thought of anti-Semitism, I think of it in terms of neo-Nazis, um, the alt-right, swastikas. But in your book, you make the case that it can and does at times come from the far left as well. And I want to dive into that argument in a moment. But first, I'd like to, if we can, just define our term, specifically the term woke. Uh, we get That the term gets thrown around a lot today. Yes. Um, what does it mean? What is woke ideology? Yeah. So I define woke ideology as having two key tenets. The first is that prejudice and bias and oppression are not just a matter of personal attitude, but are embedded in the very systems and structures of society. That's tenet one. Mm -hmm. Tenet two is that uh, only those who have experienced that oppression and that bias have the insight and the qualification to define it for the rest of us. Only those with lived experience get to tell us what it is. And it's that second tenet which sometimes can be true. I mean, you can learn from somebody who's experienced bias or oppression. They might have experiences that you don't. You should give them a listen. But that doesn't mean that they have the unqualified right to define it for the rest of society. And so this, so that second tenet is sometimes weaponized. It's to suggest that if you don't have that lived experience, then you really have no right to comment, that you really have to defer to those who do. And I think that's really the root cause of what we call cancel culture is mm. that, you know, as people say, listen, um, you don't get to tell people what racism is or what constitutes racism or what doesn't constitute racism. And if you do, then you've lost your standing in society. So I think that's that's the sort of root at what we're talking about, this uh, this ideology, which has some kernels of truth in it but is used and abused in ways that are meant to silence discourse and at times even persecute others. And there's a couple of terms that also uh, are often invoked when we're talking about this. The first is, is equity. And um, listeners will probably know there is a difference between equality, which is something that is a bedrock, uh, at least 
in in theory for America's from America's founding and equity. So talk to us a little bit about that. What's the difference between equality and equity, which is what the woke movement is looking for? Yeah. So I think if, if we probably had this discussion a few years ago and you asked me that question, I would have been, well, they're pretty much the same thing. But um, Ibram X. X Kendi, who wrote the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, define equity as any disparity among groups um, on, in any discipline, in any area. So if one group is doing less well than another group in a particular profession, that in and of itself is proof of discrimination and of racism and is of, of inequity. Mm-hmm. So equity is the opposite of inequity. Equity is to bring groups into a state of parity with each other. So if, for example, you find that there are fewer than 13% African-Americans in sciences, then there's a, a, a problem with equity in sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it reduces all disparity to a single factor, which is discrimination. That's what equity is. And when you look at a lot of the equity audits that are being done in corporations and government, they're about looking at the representation of various groups in various fields and asking what they can do to bring those numbers into parity. So that's how influential Kendi has been in redefining what we mean by equity and, and in many ways what people mean by equality now, too, because I don't think that they understand what the difference is anymore. Sure. And the other term, and, and we're going to be talking about this later, I'm sure, is intersectionality. And, and this is messy, um, but tell us what is intersectionality? Yeah. So if you look at the original meaning of intersectionality, it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a an academic, a law professor, um, it was the idea that if you were a black woman, there was no category for you under the law. So if you were discriminated against because you were both black and a woman, rather than either one of those two, the law didn't actually cover you in that way, and you wouldn't qualify for the anti-discrimination law. So it was found a loophole in the law. Over time, what that's been used, that framework's been used to mean is that is that you can face double jeopardy as a minority or oppressed group. So um, if you're both black and disabled, you may face added risk or added discrimination or added oppression because you're you, you cross categories and that those that those categories of oppression reinforce each other in a way that make you even more at risk for oppression and discrimination. It's also been used to suggest that, um, as the term intersectional would make you think, that all minority groups can sort of band together um, and face down oppression, and that all oppression is equal, and all all uh, and all the oppressors are sort of working together. So it might say that look, patriarchy, which is male domination, and um, and and white supremacy, which is uh, which is white domination, and um, you know in and various other ways of, of, of imposing the dominant culture on society, those, those we, the, we can unite to oppose that dominant framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and so cisnormativity was the other word I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, which holds that only people with who are cisgendered or either define themselves as men or women are the dominant framework. So, so that's uh, how intersectionality is sort of 
evolved over time. It means different things to different people, and it's very hard to talk about. And, and it doesn't mean, again, that there's no kernel of truth to the original definition. Like, sure. you know, it is very possible that if you're if you're a member of more than one minority, minority group, you might have faced additional obstacles. Like, I think that's a totally legitimate heuristic to understand a, a specific dynamic. But what happens is it's taken from a, a heuristic and turned into some grand axiom that pretends to describe all of reality. And then before you know it, it's it's weaponized into some into some you know law, golden rule that we that that anybody who violates is now you know guilty of uh, being an oppressor. And as we as I read in your book, it really becomes even an in-house pecking order among minorities of who is who's more oppressed than the other and who's more, you know, further down on the chain and therefore has more rights to grievances. Right. So there's the, there are various hierarchy of privileges. Um, so that you can find, if you look that up, you will find diversity and equity and inclusion programs and businesses and what have you that will share with you some hierarchy and tell you exactly where you fit in based on your identity. Now, the idea of the intersectionality is, okay, you may be a member of more than one of those classes. So in one respect, you might be a man and be privileged. In another respect, you might be black and and, and be oppressed. So it, it try, that's its version of, of complexity. But of course, that's not complex at all. Sure. It's just a way of saying that automatically whatever identity you're assigned is going to give you either privilege or privilege or oppression. And that's ridiculous, of course. Like, you know, it may be true that in some contexts being white is an advantage over being black, but not in every context, everywhere. Sure. And and so it's a very simplistic way of looking at the world. And I think it leads us in all kinds of dangerous directions. Unless people think that this is a politically conservative screed um, against the other side, your book. Um, you make it clear in the book that you yourself are left of center politically. Um, and um, in fact, you were the president and CEO of the Jewish uh, Council for Public Affairs. You were involved in some liberal causes through that, uh, through those, uh, that organization. So I have to ask, what motivates a politically left of center person to write a book that pushes back against a leftist ideology? What, what was the motivation in doing that? Yeah. You know, so my version of the left growing up was that, look, there are some people who have more in society and some people who have less in society. I don't pretend to know exactly why that's the case, but I do feel a sense of obligation to help people. If somebody doesn't have health care and they can't feed their kids or they can't get basic, you know, medical care or, um, you know, I want to find ways of helping them to lift them up. And, sure. and, and, and so... Um, I don't think the charitable sector does it alone. Um, you know, I and so I, I would have called myself a political liberal on those issues. Um, but um, what happened was that it was no longer enough to say that you're that there are have and have nots and the haves should help the have nots. It's that the haves caused the condition of the have nots, mm -hmm. that they are the ones who are responsible for those deprivations. So it went from being sort of a prescriptive idea of, of political liberalism, I'm going to help people because they need help, to a, a descriptive, an ideological claim that that um, that the people who have more are responsible for people who are having less. It's a zero-sum game. And I thought that was, A, wrong, and B, damaging, and, and see highly ideological. I mean, it's an opinion and people were selling it as, as if it's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and we really have to push back against that. It's just the wrong social model for society. So while I consider myself a, 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 um, a center left person on many policy issues um, to this day, 
I, I think that the biggest challenges facing society are, are assaults on what you might call our liberal values, our small L liberal values sure. of free expression of ideas, rule of law, and so forth, that are the um are the are the water that we swim in in a society, a free society like this. That's being assaulted. So that's a more important issue for me at this point than many of the differences of opinion I might have with people on the center right around policy issues. Sure. Now you at least from my vantage point, you came into contact with woke ideology, certainly earlier than I ever did, and probably earlier than many Americans. Um, describe those first encounters. What did you think when you were face, first faced with this ideology? Yeah, so it goes back to college. When I, I was a, a student at Ohio State University, um, I go to conferences with students from different colleges, not from the Midwest necessarily, who already had what you might call politically correct attitudes. And I already realized, wow, there's something going on here that's very different from the way I understood myself as a liberal. So going all the way back to maybe like being 19 years old, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Then um, as I entered the professional world, I was a Jewish advocacy professional. I started to see it in various ways. I went to this conference on multiculturalism it was part of a program that I was in. And the, the person who was leading the conference um, said that prejudice and that racism equals prejudice plus power. Hmm. What? I always thought that racism was just bigotry against another racial group. But that was a completely different understanding of what racism was. In other words, you had to have power to be a racist, and you couldn't be a, vi a victim if you were perceived as having power. Mm -hmm. And immediately struck me that Jews would not be in that definition of racism, that we would be perceived as a powerful group, and that that could spawn its own form of anti-Semitism over time. And that was, I wrote about that in the early 2000s, I think 2002, mm -hmm. I first wrote about that. I also started to see it in the various coalitions I was a part of on various progressive issues, you know, Asian groups started to sound like they had a major grievance in society or Hispanic groups. And they started to talk about America in very different ways as being an oppressive country. And I thought, that's not good. I mean, is that really the way we ought to be viewing America? To me, America was a country with very high ideals that it was still trying to live up to. Sure. And, and that's how we should understand our role in America and try to help it live up to those very high ideals. But these were people who thought that America from uh, from head to toe was a racist enterprise. And um, and I thought, well, I hope that doesn't catch on in my own ideological camp, but it did. Mm. The foreword of your book was, was written by one of your personal heroes. Uh, you write about him, uh, Natan Taransky, who spent nine years during the 70s, 80s as a refusenik in Soviet prisons. Um, Taransky often speaks of doublethink. Um, and this was, of course, I think coined or at least popularized by George Orwell, uh, the idea where people believe or think one thing, but they espouse something that's culturally acceptable. That's, that's usually in opposition to what they believe. Um, but as Sharansky notes, and, and you quote him in your book and you say in the United States, or he says in the United States, no one is forcing you into doublethink. No one right. will disappear. You freedom of expression depends only on the courage of your convictions End quote. But as you write, there was a there came a point in your life when you realized that you, free American, no one's going to disappear you. Um, you had become a double thinker. You you believed one thing but said another. So tell us about that. What made you recognize this dichotomy in your own life, and what did you do about it? Yeah. Well, first of all, last night I was watching a little bit of the 
uh, World Cup soccer coverage. <laughs> you know, I'm not a big soccer fan, but I want to know what's going on. And I saw that the Iranian team band together and refused to mouth the words to their own national anthem. And many Iranians who were at the game cheered them on. And I was thinking to myself, what an incredibly brave act of these soccer players. I mean, they could be putting themselves at risk, their families at risk. Um, the Iranian parliament voted to execute 14,000 Iranian prisoners, political prisoners. I mean, just mind boggling. And the courage it took to do that to me was just so inspiring. Yes. And and then I think about the the our, our own lives and how people are scared to express a point of view or to, or to demonstrate some dissent um, when people might call them out for something. And I think, wow, we really need to find our courage in this, or we're giving into these sort of totalitarian sentiments. Um, so for, you know, I've, I've probably been more outspoken than most and willing to, to express my views about these things and my concerns about them. But, you know, I had to hold my, bite my tongue, particularly in my last job, I was the head of a Jewish organization that is an umbrella to other Jewish groups. And some of those Jewish groups were sort of, um, quite woke on the on the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. And and there were times that I wanted to say things that I thought I should say that I didn't say because I knew it would cost me um, career-wise, that it could put me in a very bad spot. And um, and I realized that I I was engaging in a kind of double thing. It really hit home when in the wake of the George Floyd killing, I really thought that there should be not just, um, we should hear from black thinkers, not just on the far left, who believed America was a pervasively racist country, but from other black thinkers like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and Coleman Hughes, who are who are articulating a very different narrative and who believe that America is a generally a good equal country, but has its own problems, and and that we should listen to that as well and not go, um, you know, hook, line, and sinker for this new ideology that we were hearing. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't I didn't push hard for it. Because I, I knew I would lose or I thought I would lose. Maybe I, I was wrong. Maybe I could have won, but I, I didn't push hard for it. And that made me a double thinker. And I realized that I could not sustain that forever. Well, I want to talk now about the the, the wokeism, anti-Semitism connection. Uh, you spend quite a bit of time in your in your book detailing the the problems with woke ideology, particularly as it has infiltrated um Jewish organizations that you've worked with, um, you quote writer Dara Horn, and I want to I want to read this for listeners. Uh, Dara Horn, by the way, if you haven't read uh, any of her writing, she's brilliant. But she writes this. She says, "Since ancient times, in every place they have ever lived, Jews have represented the frightening prospect of freedom. As long as Jews existed in any society, there was evidence that it, in fact, wasn't necessary to believe what everyone else believed." that those who disagreed with their neighbors could survive and even flourish against all odds. And after quoting that, you write, a society that begins to make it harder for people to express their beliefs is an ominous indicator that the society could turn on its Jews. So unpack that for us. I, I've heard often mm. that the Jewish people in any society are the canary in the coal mine. Um, and we think of that in terms of Nazi Germany and and you know various fascist states, but how does that play yeah. out uh, in, in a democratic society like our own? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If you would ask me, what is the number one risk of anti-Semitism and woke ideology? It's that our classical liberal democratic values start to erode in society. Jews do best in free societies. Mm. And they 
they suffer in societies that are not free. The freer the society is, the better it is for the Jewish community. And uh, Jonathan Haidt, the great social psychologist, recently wrote about the structural stupidity that he's seeing in American society. And by that, he means like simplistic ideologies that are taking hold in America, on both the far right and the far left, that pretend to explain all of reality. And, um, and people buying into them in record numbers and starting to explain away very complex phenomenon in very simplistic ways. That's structural stupidity. Structural stupidity is not, as they say, good for the Jews. Mm. It is just, um, the, the, if America becomes enthralled by conspiracy theories and dogmas and is not able to think critically about issues, the Jewish community is likely to get pulled into and implicated in some of those conspiracy theories. So you see this on the right in the form of the um, use um, in, in form of the uh, great replacement theory, the yes. idea that that um, that immigrants are replacing ordinary white Americans and that Jews are doing the replacing. Right. Jews play a role in the conspiratorial imagination. Anti-Semitism has always been out there. It's always sort of been on the shelf. And so these simplistic conspiracy theories give people a way, a, almost like a permission structure, to take them off the shelf and use them to fill in whatever gaps. So on the left, with wokeism, you want if you want to look at the entire problem society as oppressed versus oppressor and no, nothing else matters, then it's very easy to start to look at Jews in particular as being on the wrong side of that equation. So I think that um, that that that's what's happening. The more um, the, the more illiberal society becomes, the more the Jewish community is at risk for more extreme sentiments. Which is interesting to me because, as you just said, on the right, the white supremacists don't view Jewish people as white or white enough. And then on the in the woke camp, um, they are the Jewish community, at least in the U.S., they're too white and or white adjacent, as they often say. So... Uh, that's just a complex thing. Can the Jewish people win in this scenario when you have it coming from the right and the left? Yeah, so that's what anti-Semitism tends to do. It tends to associate Jews with whatever is bad in society. So uh, if you think whiteness is a moral good, then Jews aren't white. If you think whiteness is a moral evil, then Jews are white. Um, so Jews are sort of caught between those two ideological polls, but also those two views of, of whiteness and are on the on the losing side of both. Mm. Um, and you see that a lot, you know, um, Jews are, by the way, very represented in almost every kind of ideological or social movement. So sure. if you believe that Jews created wokeness, and I've seen that, you know, mm. and there are there were Jews who did, then then um, were involved with it, then you'll say Jews created wokeness. Though you'll ignore the idea, of course, that many of the leading opponents of, of wokeness are also Jews. Exactly. Uh, if you want to say that Jews are communists, yeah, you'd, you'd find a disproportionate number of Jews, but then you'd ignore the fact that there's a disproportionate number of Jews in, in, in capitalism as well. So, you know, you're going to find Jews in every single ideological strain. We're going to be overrepresented everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that overrepresentation helps raise uh, raise the, the conspiracy theorist's imagination. Mm -hmm. Well, how does this relate to anti-Zionism and the, uh, I'll call it the Arab conflict with Israel? Israel doesn't seem to have much of a conflict with the Arab community, but um, we hear the, the term colonialism a lot from the left in terms of Israel. So how does wokeism approach the uh, Zionism and the conflict with Israel? 
Yeah, so there's been an ideology around for quite some time. I will call it post-colonialism. It's the idea that we have some countries in the world who are more successful than other countries in the world, right? And so, um, you know, the global north is responsible for the oppression of the global south. Um, and you saw this in the writings of Edward Said in, in Orientalism and the like. And if you were to go back to the year 2001 during the World Conference on Racism in Durban, South Africa, you it became a virtual anti-Israel hate fest. I mean, it was really scary for the Jews who were in attendance. It got that angry, vehement, and threatening. Now, people didn't understand at the time, this was not just something that emerged from nowhere. It it came, it grew out of this post-colonial ideology that looked at the world in these very binary terms. And what wokeism is, is sort of this binary ideology applied domestically. Um, and, and so um, what it does, so Zionism always was part of the sort of post-colonialist uh, grievance. Um, it, it emerged out of Soviet ideology, by the way, and the Soviets really turned it into an, an art form um, and, and, you know, it was it was one of the ways that they that they expressed anti-Semitism and that caught on. It's a Soviet Union is a large country and, and one of the dominant forces during the Cold War, obviously. And that um, and that popularized it. So if you take post-colonialism and the grievances that come out of that and you add it with the Soviet form of a post-colonial anti-Zionism, um, you see that this that anti-Zionism emerges from the, that. Now, the fear is that you're taking um, this ideology, this binary thinking that's been applied to the whole globe, and now applying it to the United States to, or to Canada or to the UK. And, and, and you're saying, okay, we're going to condition people to think of the world in binary terms, oppressors versus oppressors. How are Jews going to be perceived in that binary framework? And how is Israel going to be perceived in the binary framework? And we already have evidence that the more likely you are to believe in this ideology, this oppressor-oppressor ideology, the more likely you also find Israel to be the oppressor. It's just that simple. Yeah. So if my kids in their public schools are learning an ideology, which they are, I mean, I just read the anti-racist audit that my kids' school, Montgomery County Public Schools is, is doing. They're teaching kids to think this way. Mm -hmm. They're they're changing the software and the way our children understand the world. And if and and you know they're going to grow up look thinking in very different ways and and one way they're going to look at it and they're going to they don't need you don't need to say jews in israel to condition them in a way that's going to look that's going to make them think that jews are oppressors and that israelis are oppressors yes well and that brings up the question you mentioned in your book uh in working with with more left of center individuals and organizations there's a reluctance um for some of them to call out leftward anti-Semitism, whereas there's a, you know, a very easy calling out of that which comes on the alt-right. on the alt -right. So why do you think that is? Where does that reluctance come from? Yeah. So interestingly, people will call out left-wing anti-Semitism. What they won't do is identify the underlying ideology. Mm. So for example, when they talk about right-wing anti-Semitism, when mainstream Jewish groups talk about um, right-wing anti-Semitism, they won't hesitate to talk about the ideological underpinnings, the replacement theory. When they even talk about Muslim anti-Semitism, they'll talk about Islamist ideology and the view of the Jew and the Christian as the infidels and the like. They'll talk about that. But when they talk about left-wing anti-Semitism, it's as if they're talking about a symptom without a set of causes. Mm -hmm. And um, they're reluctant to because many 
American Jews themselves have bought into this ideology. By the way, obviously, many Protestants and many Catholics Absolutely. have as well. It's not it's not just limited to the Jewish community. So so if you're if you've bought in, if you've signed on the dotted line on these issues, maybe in the wake of George Floyd, because it finally convinced you that that you were wrong and others were right, or maybe just you want to be in line with the times. And then someone says, hey, by the way, that may be generating anti-Semitism. You may be in a in a in uh, a state of shock or disbelief because you now might see yourself implicated in spreading anti-Semitism. Mm. And that's why it's so hard to talk about. Yeah. Well, wokeism identifies itself at least as progressive, and there can be no doubt that the ideology itself will indeed progress, uh, I think, in a negative way as it infiltrates various spheres of our culture. So what do you think, you know, looking at your crystal ball, what will this mean for the Jewish community going forward? Yeah, so I think this is still in its early stages in many ways. Like the the idea of equity is just now moving through society. Like a lot of organizations and companies signed on the dotted line of equity after George Floyd. But, you know, it takes a while. You get the audit, you do your your study, internal review study, you hire a new DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion director, you hire a, a consulting firm. It takes them a while. They do an analysis. And then a uh, year, two, three, four years later, that starts to become implemented in your in your daily lives and your business. So I worry about the future more than I do about the present. I think mm. it's already damaging in the present, but I think if we can't stem the tide of this ideology, it's going to even be more damaging in the future. It also, by the way, it also brings out the worst on the far right as well. So if you're telling everybody who's white that they're privileged and they're living in an opioid-infested city and you know former manufacturing town, they're going to be very resentful at that idea. And it might lead them to their own identity politics, sort of a white identity politics on the right that can be very racist in nature and bad for the way that they see the world and they do politics. So I worry that we're entering this this really bad, vicious cycle that is already polarized, but is going to become even more polarized in the years ahead if we can't put a stop to it. The problem is that we might be able to win politically. In other words, like you might be able, you know, if it put to the political test, most Americans don't like this. Mm -hmm. Most minority communities, by the way, don't like this either. Um, so you might win at the polls. But what I'm finding is that institutions are way downstream from politics, that um, institutions really bought into this. And it's very hard to sort of reverse course once you've actually signed up for it. You've hired people, you've made certain institutional commitments, and now you're sort of stuck with the ideology. And I worry that that's going to be a generational challenge. Yeah. Well, David, um, I, I have to admit, as a white male, heterosexual, conservative, Zionist, evangelical Christian, whatever identifiers you want to put in there, I'm, I'm toast by the woke's definition. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm privileged and I'm oppressive. But that notwithstanding, um, what can I do? What can other followers of Jesus who love the Jewish people, they love Israel, um, they take seriously the threat of anti-Semitism, what can we do to help your people face this, uh, this ideology? Right. So when it comes to fighting anti-Semitism, I always say start in your own backyard. So my backyard is the sort of liberal Jewish community. So even though it's harder for me, I'm making ex-friends along the way, mm -hmm. I'm spending more time talking about it on the left than I am on the right, even though it's a problem on the right. Um, you know, 
young evangelicals, by the way, are susceptible to the same ideological shifts as our young Jews and as our young people in general. Yes. And we see in the various uh, polling and surveying data that there's that there's a growing, um, you know, distance between young evangelicals in Israel. And so I think there's work to do there. And I know you're doing that work and I could not appreciate it more. I also think that, look, I mean, part of dealing with this problem is right-wing anti-Semitism as well. And, and, and calling that out too. Um, you know, if, if most evangelicals are conservative, you know, yes, talk about woke anti-Semitism and I appreciate it and I love to sell books, but I'd also love to make sure that evangelical Christians are, um, are, are calling out people who, who, um, you know, are demeaning to the Jewish community or who buy into replacement theory, which I'm sure happens, oh, yes. you know, call them out too. Call them out too and, and, and deal with it on the right as well. Well, listeners, we've been talking with David Bernstein, the founder and CEO of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, and we've been talking to him about his recent book, Woke Anti-Semitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. And David, I want to thank you for uh, not only for your time, but also for this book and for the work you're doing over at JILV. I want to thank you for joining me today on Gesher. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much, Tom. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.